0: Okay, in a recent episode, we examined how a whole industry could become stickier, and we used the UK hospitality sector as our test case. Today, we are sort of continuing that theme, but looking at an entirely different industry, the care industry. And we're tackling a topic that I think is not only important, but incredibly close to many of our hearts. How do we make working in the care sector the very best job in the world? The care sector is, I think, the backbone of many of our communities providing invaluable support to our elders, those with disabilities, and individuals in need. It's a sector where dedicated caregivers work tirelessly to ensure our loved ones can age gracefully, either in the comfort of their own homes or in managed facilities. Yet despite the incredible work many do in this sector, it's no secret that the professional carers working in the industry have often faced low wages, difficult working conditions, and as a result, employers in the sector experience high levels of employee attrition and turnover. But today, we're here to explore a brighter vision. How can we transform working in care into the best job in the world? Our guest, Dan Archer, the CEO of Visiting Angels, a company dedicated to making aging in place a reality has dedicated himself to just that. With his help, we'll dive into the current landscape of the care sector, understand the power of viewing caregiving as a vocation, discover the strategies and success stories that can pave the way to a brighter future. So if you're a professional carer or a leader in the care sector, or simply someone like me who cares about people having better work lives, then this episode is for you. Join us as we explore a path towards valuing, retaining, and elevating the incredible individuals who provide comfort and companionship to our loved ones. Welcome to the show, Dan. Andy, thank you for having me on. How are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. It's nice to see you this bright and breezy morning. So, I mean, this could be quite emotive for a lot of people, I Mm -hmm. think. And we've come through a period of time um, that is all about has all been about care, right? And looking out for people, looking after people. And in some ways, that sector has been under the spotlight. It's been elevated in people's minds, and and we've seen a lot of it. And yet, there's a there's a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's not just the government stuff we hear about in the troubles of the care sector. We want to talk today about what it really feels like to work in that sector and what what the vision of the future can be to look like. To get to this dream of making it. Somewhere that can easily qualify as being one of the best jobs in the world. But before we get into all of that, my friend, do me a very quick favour. Can I just get a brief introduction to to you, your background, and, and what you're currently focused on, please?
1: Absolutely, no problem at all. Um, and I, I think you know, what, what I would say, Andy, is I, I, I regularly do say about the care sector is that people don't really know about our industry mm. unless they work in care or they've received care for a family member. But for, for most in society, we don't think about this stuff until we absolutely have to think about it. Um, and, and normally when we are thinking about it, then it becomes quite an urgent thing to, to, to do. But that was exactly my background. and my experience. I mean, I've, I've worked commercially for 25 years. For the last 12 years, I've worked in the care industry. Um, and up until 2010, I'd never really thought about adult social care at all.
2: Mm.
1: And then we needed care for my mom's mom, for my nan. Um, my my nan was uh, more than just my grandmother Uh, my my dad was pretty absent during our childhood so my nan played an active role in in raising me my brother and my sister Um, and she had arthritis for 15 years Um, and towards the end of her life for the last two years of her life that arthritis was arthritis in her spine Mm. what went along with that were instances of pain which were very acute um, and dizziness lightheadedness and the risk of falls so as a family, we took a recommendation from a social worker who said, you should probably get a, a home care provider come in to provide your nan with some care and support. Um, so that's what we did. Um, and in the first eight weeks of care and support, we had 15 different carers visit my nan's place. Wow. A constant sort of revolving door of new face after, after new face. And I'm, I'm a shepherd lad. My nan was from Sheffield as well. My nan, I would say my nan had an northern sense of humor about it. She used to say she only knew she was getting care when the blue tabard showed up. <laughs> Didn't care the people because the people changed every day, but she recognised the uniform, and the uniform became the basis for the relationship. Right? And I, I, I would anyway. Yeah, one of the one of the big questions we asked actually when we started the company is why Why do we need a uniform? Mm. What's the purpose of the uniform? Right? And, and I, I would argue in many instances the uniform has become a proxy for the relationship which should exist between the client and the carer. Um, but that, that that was our first exposure. Lots and lots of different uh, places coming to the house. We also had times of visits moving around the place, so it should have been an eight o'clock breakfast call, but it was getting shunted forward or back. Um, and I and I now know the reason it was moving around the rotor was because the care provider couldn't do an eight o'clock call because of staff turnover, and as a result of that, they were moving my nan's call around the shift to be able to get it get it completed at a later point in the. In the day, but long story short, I, I took a I took a phone call from my mom on a Tuesday morning um, to say that a carer had not attended my nan's call that morning. and My nan had a fall; um, she fell into the bedside table, quite a bad fall. Um, and after a brief period in hospital, unfortunately, we lost her. Um, so I've seen the worst of our sector firsthand. My family's seen the worst of our sector firsthand. Um, and when I when I came to working in the sector, I worked for a, a large national domiciliary care provider with a fantastic reputation um, and, and a better approach to staffing in actual fact. Um, I learned my trade with them. Um, I prior to starting visiting angels was running a live-in care business. Um so I you know lots of exposure to the challenges that go around care. But when I started visiting angels, I looked at the sector and thought, Do you know what? There's a problem here, and the problem is recruitment and retention. Right. Um, I looked at close to 50 businesses, actually, when I was researching the start of the company and none of them had a people focused mission statement. You know, when I, when I wrote our mission for Visiting Angels, it was the first people focused mission statement in the care sector. You know, um, I, I'm becoming increasingly proud to say I had a moment of clarity in summer 2017 when with a blank sheet of paper in front of me, I came up with the concept of being care centric. Mm. Um, and I think I was the first person on the planet to use the words care centric um to put carers first, to make carers the most important people in the organization. So there's a ton of stuff that we do, which I'm sure we'll get into as we carry on talking about the things that we do which make us different in that respect. But the start point for the company when we launched it was putting carers first, because without carers we do not have a company.
0: Yeah, and I think we will definitely get into what you see as the future. I think I'm interested to pick up on what you said about the fact that we don't in the main understand the care sector unless we have used it so what is the current state of the care sector as somebody who is slap bang in it what what are the issues it's facing and what are some of the pinch points that perhaps general public don't see aren't aware of
1: um, and i think the, the 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 media are pretty good at reporting some of this stuff but i'm I'm conscious that as you say because i'm in the middle of the sector i'm hypersensitive to the stuff that is. yeah of course there are many people if it's not relevant to them will just dismiss it as news that's not appropriate for them right then right so um we currently have 152,000 vacancies in adult social care
0: and 150- when you say vacancies dan you're talking about job vacancies right yeah. you have understaffing of that that amount
1: right yeah vacant jobs so yeah. that's over 150,000 empty jobs for the demand which exists today okay now we've got an aging population people are living longer with increasingly complex medical conditions and because of the problems that exist elsewhere in the health service those those conditions are not able to be supported by nursing teams in a local community so increasingly what's happening is that's pushing down onto social care providers for them to do increasingly complex work for a growing number of potential clients okay Mm. So people living longer with more complex conditions is increasing the demand for the sector. And we've got over 000, over 150,000 empty jobs today. Where will we be in five, 10 years time? Well, we need more people, not less people, okay? In addition to that, the people living longer and the complexity of the conditions they live with, we've just got more elderly people. So population dynamics is at play. The baby boomer generation, the people who were born in the forties and fifties, there are more of them, it was a baby boom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those people are coming to a point where they now need some care and support. So there is excess demand and there is a supply side shortage in the care industry. As to why that is, well, there are a combination of factors on that. Brexit has had a role to play on that. Um, the company I was running prior to visiting Angels was a, a European business bringing carers in from Europe to the UK. Um, when the UK voted for Brexit, that was an interesting day at work that way uh, we, you know we, we and yeah the reality was long before anything changed in respect to the movement of people european care workers were not feeling as welcome in the uk because the uk was saying well we don't want to be part of europe yeah that has an, an impact the, the, the pandemic had an impact in a couple of ways because lots of people that were already in the country but from another country went home during the pandemic because we got hit quite bad with with, with coronavirus um, and in addition to that, the job itself. I mean, look, be, be clear. Nobody had a good pandemic, right? We all, we, we all, we all had issues, and we all suffered through, through the pandemic. Um, but our sector was required to face this thing head on and to carry on business as usual um, when we were dealing with people that were living with a, a disease that we didn't know anything about. Yeah. So that that increased the stress for those working in the sector, and that again led to, to people not wanting to be involved in care anymore. It's become more complex. It's become more dangerous. You know. I want to get out of this country and go away. So there are a number of reasons around that where there are just not as many people prepared to work in care as they used to be.
0: Yeah. And the very fact that, I mean, we now... This is going to sound ridiculous, but even the term essential worker, you know, maybe in the last three years, that's become more common parlance in, in terms of referring to people in that sector as giving essential services. But aren't my vision of people who work in care is again probably not dissimilar to yours it comes from the experience of seeing them look after grandparents who bless them are no longer uh, with us anymore and my experience of those people has been incredible um their dedication and then luckily i've had opportunity to work with some care clients and i'm never shocked anymore by the amount of wonderful people (laughs) who work in these these companies, just the most unassuming, lovely people who I don't understand how they can carry the amount of emotional baggage that they must have to deal with, as well as the physical toil and the hours. And yet, it seems to me that it's a vastly undervalued resource, maybe from pay, working conditions. I don't know. We pay footballers millions of pounds for kicking a ball around and we pay pence for people who who look after our loved ones i mean are we just taking advantage of these people because of their good nature when I mean, what's your view of the situation
1: and if i'm being blunt yes society is taking advantage of people's people's vocation goodwill Like people have been punished for their vocations the way that i would see it um and, and, and you, you're right. I mean, there's a huge disparity on pay between someone that kicks a kicks an inflated ball of uh, a, a vinyl around a, a football pitch and and, and, and the, the essential work done by carers. And I, I, I would I would say that if I think about the, the tasks that we're involved in, the the essential point of an essential worker in care is that people can't get out of bed. Mm. People cannot receive the medication that they require. People cannot be, have their breakfast. They cannot wash without the support that we provide. But ap- apart from those essential basics, people don't get chance to engage with the communities that they're in. People don't mm. get a chance to their home. People don't get chance to have company and to talk about the things that are important to them. If it's not for the essential work that's done by home care workers. Yeah. And you know, I, I, our 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 mission is to lead the UK care sector by 2030 as an employer of choice. Mm. And by, so redefine the role of carers in society. We are trying to change society's perception on carers. And I, I thought during the pandemic, foolishly, I thought, you know, what, we cracked it because we had, we had those instances on a Thursday night at eight o'clock where everybody who stood outside their houses clapping and bashing their pots and pans. I thought, yes, eventually society realizes what we do is so important. And what's happened subsequently is people have gone back to work and stopped clapping and put their pots and pans away. And we are still out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, supporting people in the community. Mm. You know, I go to bed at night, you know, and I've got people who work for my organization in someone's home, providing them with essential care. Mm. At two o'clock in the morning, if there's an emergency, a client may ring one of our teams, somebody has to be available to answer that call. So we are first responders for the elderly. That's where we are in, in the situation. Yeah, um, and I think I did a I did a, an interview for BBC News 24 about eighteen months, two years ago, and talking about the shortage of care workers. Because at that point, the shortage was one hundred and forty five thousand. It increased subsequently to hundred and sixty thousand. It's now come back down to one hundred fifty two thousand. Yeah, and I was interviewed by a guy who said to me, "Can you understand why we've got a shortage of people?" And I'm like, absolutely, yeah. The job is the problem. The job is not satisfying. The job is job is stressful. The job is time limited. The job is poorly paid, right? Um, And I sort of went home and and my wife works in PR. So I sort of, I went to my wife to look for some sort of reassurance that I'd done a decent job on the telly. (laughs) And she said, you can't say that on national TV. Are you aware you just said on national TV that care is not a satisfying job? And I'm like, yes, because it can be the most satisfying profession. The, The difference that you can make, the joy that comes from the bond that's created between a carer and a client is a beautiful thing. You know, helping people to reengage with things they used to do 20 years ago, helping people to re-engage with the family and society and community, helping people to do all those things, that, that can be hugely satisfying. But I'm afraid for most that work in care, that is not their experience of working in care. Their experience of working in care is they go to a new place every single day, so if you think of it in terms of the stress involved in your first day in a job, many in home care who've got a changeable rotor are having their first day at work five times a day. If you go to someone they've not been to before because they need to just go and do that as an emergency visit, you know, they've never had enough time to complete their work because they're rushing off to do something else. They're paid minimum wage or in some instances less. They're on zero hour contracts. So there's no commitment from the organization they work for to them. They drive around during the day in a car that they're running for themselves, but they don't get enough money to fuel and run that car. They not, they're not they not paid for their travel time. So if you describe that job without talking about care, is it any wonder nobody wants to do that job, right? You know, too much work to do and not enough time, lots of stress and lots of responsibility because of the complexity of what we're doing. I mean, it's stressful to sit in a supermarket clearing a belt of shopping on a daily basis, right? But nobody dies in your arms in that job.
2: Hmm.
1: In our job, they can do that. Right, so yeah, I, I would say that that what needs to change is the job, right? If, if people had more time, if people had more commitment from their employer, if people were paid better, if people had more stability in their rota so they were seeing the same clients on a regular basis and could form a relationship, that's a job that can be the most satisfying job. But unfortunately for many, that's not their experience of working in care of the man.
0: So let's try and dig into the sort of brighter future. I mean. The, the issues that you face around recruitment and retention are applicable to many industries. I said at the start of the show, we just had a conversation recently about UK hospitality. You know, that, that is an industry that's been bashed and pushed from pillar to post over the last few years. These are very real issues that it is trying to face into and having to change a lot of stuff. I think... It's even more in focus for me, this particular industry topic, because of all the things that you just talked about, because, because of the subject matter that we're dealing with here. I, I would love to hear from you as to how do you start then to deliver this, I'm going to use the word wish, probably incorrectly, but this, this wish of making it the best job in the world. What does that look like? And within that, you've mentioned the word vocation. How do we kind of like elevate that? Word because it could be mistaken for being a hobby you know you get paid for your hobby this doesn't sound like a hobby that we're dealing with here how do we get away from people being taken advantage of and almost punished for being that kind of caring person what what's the vision for the future look like that
1: well at least I, I, and I think I think you know the, the, the vision for the future has to be that those who employ care workers have to take responsibility for the position that they hold as the employer because then the, very often the narrative around the sector is about the lack of funding the lack of funding from central government the lack of funding from local government um the difficulty then that a a home care agency or an employer has in ensuring that there's a working environment that's attractive for the individuals working in care but you know we are as people that own and run care businesses, we have a choice on what rate we are prepared to work at. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We have a choice on what rate we choose to pay our staff. We are in control of that, okay? Um, And sometimes it feels like people have lost sight of the fact that they are making that choice themselves. So I would say that in in a bid to see a brighter future there, we have to stop working at an uneconomic rate. We work at a rate which is a fair rate, And a rate which enables us to better look after the people that work in our sector. We need to take responsibility first and foremost for pay conditions and benefits. As an employer, I'm in control of that. I set my pay rate. I set the contract structure that we have in place with our care workers. I set the points at which we pay during the day. You know, I I design all of that. Okay. So, and every single care provider is in the same position as I am in that respect. And they would say it's really difficult for me to do that on a council contract. And I would say if the council contract's not got enough money in it, don't do it at that rate. Yeah? because if there's not enough money from central government, if there's not enough money from local government, the people subsidising care in that situation are the care workers themselves, and that's wrong. Hmm.
0: Does that mean the person doesn't get the care
1: ultimately? No. Inevitably, it means people don't quite get the time that they need. But the, hmm. but the, the reality is that care workers are stopping beyond the end of their visit sometimes and not getting paid for it, hmm. and they're driving during the day and not getting paid for their drive time. Now, hmm. that's a subsidy from a, a low-paid worker. Because the contract that they're working on through the agency they work for to a local authority, predominantly, is not an economic contract. Mm. So don't do that work. Then. Stop doing that work. right? Um, because the consequence otherwise is we're never going to be able to change this. You
2: know?
1: so, so you've got to start with pay conditions, benefits and contracts. right? But the, the problem I've always got with this thing, when I, when I talk about these things within the sector, people look at me and go, it's all right for you, Dan. You're a private duty provider. You can afford to pay staff more. You know, we lost a member of staff for five pence an hour. And I'm like, you, you have not lost a member of staff for five pence an hour. You lost a member of staff because you were a dick to them. Yeah. We yeah. just told you it was five pence an hour. That was the reason they gave you, the excuse they gave you, right? Culture doesn't cost anything. Culture is about recognizing the important people in your organization. Yeah. And the important people in the organization are the carers delivering care, right? So if you look through the world, look at the world through the eyes of a carer, you absolutely inevitably run your business differently. So you have proper contracts, not zero-hour contracts. Why would a carer be loyal to an organization that's not prepared to be loyal to them? A zero-hour contract gives no loyalty and therefore you should expect no loyalty, right? So a proper contract, not a zero-hour contract. Being paid a decent wage for the work that is being done because the industry is still addicted to a position we had 15, 20 years ago where there was a the plentiful supply of people and the job itself was far less skilled back then. It's always been a complicated job, but it's far more complex now than it ever has been. The job has changed, right? The approach of some within the industry hasn't changed necessarily, right? So if you're going to say, well, the, 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 if the job is equivalent to the job being done by an HCA in a hospital setting, then absolutely the pay should be the same, not 40% less than it would be if this job was being done in a hospital. Yeah? Mm. The pay has to improve. Um, People need to be paid for all of the work that they are doing. We stand on a hill over drive time. Our carers drive from point A to point B because we tell them to do that. We pay them for that time because that is their job. I think it's disgraceful that some providers will say we do not pay for travel time because that is not work. That is people traveling to work and your place of work is each instance that you go to deliver care, right? That's nonsense, right? Because those same providers are also saying to their carers, "Oh, by the way, you need business insurance. If you need business insurance, it's work, right? So pay people for the work they're doing." So, it, and it's like the, the, when you start to make those changes to to to, to under, you know, you, you get away with some of the hygiene stuff needs to, needs to be cleaned up, right? You, you've got you've got to give people that that assurance, the base level of Maslow, you've got to give people the ability to know they're getting paid fairly for the work they're doing. But then beyond that, then you've got to understand well what what motivates a carer. Yeah, and what motivates a carer is to make a difference. They've got caring in their hearts. They've got caring bones, right? So what you do is you then try to engineer that they can do that as much as possible. So you give them the consistency of seeing the same clients week in, week out. You give the client a choice of who their caregiver is so that there's a genuine chance that the clients and the caregiver will form a relationship. One of our brand values is family. Another one of our brand values is relationship. That's not by accident. You know, that's That's where we end up sitting in the interactions between carers and clients, okay? Um, and culture is about, yeah, you know, as I say, thinking of things from a caregiver's perspective, um, meeting the challenges that they face, assisting them with that. You know, we, we create a bond between a client and a carer. And inevitably, unfortunately, what happens is that client passes away. Now, what some in the industry will do is say to a carer, well, dust yourself off, get on with it, because Margaret over there needs some care, right? Now, you know, we need to recognize that if we create a relationship between the client and the carer, that carer needs help to cope with what happens when that client passes.
2: Mm.
1: So you know, we provide people with with therapy around grief counseling. We, we provide them with training to understand how to process grief. Um, we, we and we do these things because we're looking at the job of being a carer through a carer's eyes.
0: And, and I'm assuming that that is not unique to you, though, Dan. You know, as an as an outsider, or and I I shouldn't actually say I'm an outsider because I've kind of obviously done a fair bit of work in in the sector and and i've seen some of the things that go on inside so are, are you just saying that there's not enough of this stuff it's not consistent enough it's not at the right level or that in the main it doesn't exist
1: i i, I would say in the main it doesn't exist and, and 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 that is that is not to say that there are not people who gen- you know, we we talk about carer centric people right because our, our vision is to be carer centric there are some very care-centric people working within organizational structures, which are working against them. They are not able to be as care-centric as they want to be. Yeah. Because there's either not the budget devoted to it or there's the, the, the structure and approach is wrong. There's an awful lot of learned behavior in our industry. You know, people who do what they do because of a reflex response their, their experience has been that they've done it this way. Therefore, they're going to carry on doing it this way. And we are in a different world now to where we were five years ago and definitely to where we were 10 or 15 years ago. Right. So. You've, you've got you've got to change. You've got to cut your cloth accordingly, right? If, if we've got a shortage of people, if the job is harder than it's ever been, you've got to start to recognise that and do something about it. And I think there are some that still deny that a yeah? Okay. Um, but but yeah, what what frustrates I think a little bit is that this this stuff is really very straightforward when you start breaking it down. Yeah. Because there's, there's a stat that a guy called Neil, Neil Eastwood who wrote a book called uh, Saving Social Care. He's a fantastic chap, um, and and he he. He's got a stat on the number of care workers who quit a job on day one. 16% of people quitting a job on day one do so because they didn't feel welcome by the organization. Now, I don't care what your contract structure is. I don't care what your pay rate is. That is as simple as smiling, saying hello and saying to a new employee, welcome to the organization. I recognize you had a choice on where you chose to work. Thank you for choosing visiting angels.
0: Do you think some of that comes from? The stress on the environment, the busyness in the environment. You've talked about gap in people, gap gap in skills. So the people in these organisations, the people often, if you're in a home managing or leading the home, if you're uh, working in the sort of like the more mobile piece, I, I guess you've got people who are trying to look after those those individuals as well. Is is it a case of people being head down, bum up, and genuinely not having time for these things or is it just not a mental thought that we we need to onboard this person in a manner that's appropriate
1: i i I think it's it's too close to the problem to be able to stand back and see a way around it and we and i i I was i i the fortunate position before i started the company of having sort of six months of gardening leave to have enough time to be able to plan for what we we were going to do and i started with a blank sheet of paper um now I, I absolutely accept if you're in the middle of a business that's struggling to find carers that, that is losing carers that's committed to a contract which might be an economic contract in the first place, you're too busy fixing the problem of today, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got 15 visits for this afternoon that need to be covered and you're just getting on and doing that, right? Um so to have me come on here and talk about what we've managed to achieve, sometimes people look at me and go just shut up, Dan, I don't want to hear it, you know. Mm. Um, but but we 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 have to have this conversation. Yeah, I I did an event down in London about two months ago now, and there was a conversation in the audience about what we call care workers, you know, care assistants, carers, care professionals, caregivers. What's the terminology that's the right terminology? We'd like to use the word care team members because we think we need to make them feel like part of a team. And I genuinely said, look, do you think when you're paying the minimum wage or less and they're on a zero hour contract, they give a shit what name they've got? what the, what the, what the name badge says does not matter in that situation, right So resolve the situation with regard to pay structure, contracts, time, stress, yeah, and then let's have a debate about what we call people.
0: Yeah, this sounds to me not unlike other clients that I work with or other industries or other topics that we've talked about here on on the podcast in that the the issues are pretty much the same. The execution and the and the and the landscape can can be different, but we're facing similar issues. And we're talking here about, I guess, two pieces really. One, you can't get away from the pay and working condition stuff, but that is table stakes. You know, your thing about people saying that we've lost someone for five p. I, I I genuinely don't believe it's the five p. The five p is the straw that's broken the camel's back, but it's all the other pieces. So the table stake stuff gets you into the game. It's what you do on top of that which is the key to retention, which is the key to brand reputation. And I think that's where the majority of focus needs to come. But if you don't get the table stakes sorted out, you've got no hope. You just, you just nod at the game.
1: I will also say it's really difficult to overlay a culture on an existing business. Right? Again, the advantage we had is we started from scratch. We built this thing from the ground up with carer-centric being the vision for the organization, right? So at every point we ask it, you know, the the commercial question we ask all the time, as a business, if I do that, does it improve the life of a carer?
0: Yeah, and I think many, many businesses face the same problem, right? We don't all have the luxury of starting from scratch. Most businesses today who are looking and trying to evolve or improve their culture are doing it from, you know, a whole bunch of history, a whole bunch of baggage, and trying to make it work, which is why I think it's important that we kind of do focus in on different industries and look at their particular challenges. But it's no surprise that many of the challenges that all of these businesses face come back to similar things. And I think the second port of call, which is perhaps more pointed for this particular industry, is how we get to this part of making people seen, heard, and valued and i think the tactics and strategies that we put in place for that to happen in this sector i think is really really interesting so what what specifically and, and we talked about a lot of the sort of i guess more technical thing the pay the benefits the working conditions the workplace safety measures but when it comes to recognition and valuing and appreciating what people do and how how we show that and supporting them through the more emotional times What's that future look like, Dan? What should be happening?
1: Well, I mean, we I, we 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 spend a lot of time on that stuff. um And, and I think what what I would say, we because we, we we start prepping the conversation about recruitment and retention, right? Because it's always recruitment, it's always R and R recruitment and retention, right? the yeah, right yeah. Wrong way, right way around. Retention then recruitment, right? Yeah. Put a put a plug in the bath, then start filling it up. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how fast you run the taps, you are not filling that bath up, right? Um, And and in our industry, 60 to 70% staff turnover common in domiciliary care businesses, right? So, you know, fix your retention problems first. Now, retention is all about engagement with the people, right? Looking through the eyes of a caregiver, recognising what's important to them, it's about a clear point of communication where they understand the importance that they have within the organization. Right. So simple stuff. I I I yeah, you know, even though you know I'm chief exec for an organization now with 60 offices around the country, we we are growing phenomenally quickly. Um, my business in Shepherd, the one that I started first and foremost, I still meet every new caregiver that joins us. I still take time during their induction to go down and say hello and to make sure they've all got my mobile number. Yeah. And I say to them, look, don't ring me at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night when you're drunk, right? Because if, if you do that, I'm going to want to know why I wasn't invited to the party, right? <laughs> they, they, they need to know who I am. And they also need to know that they can, if they need to contact me. Now it's, that's very uncommon. The number of people who say to me, I've worked in care for 10 years. I've never met the owner of the business before. Yeah. Um, and, and equally workplace recognition. We, we have caregiver of the month. We have caregiver of the year. We then have a national Caregiver of the Year programme where each Caregiver of the Year from each of our offices locally is brought together at our conference, which is uh, the 1st of December this year in Birmingham. Um, and you know, at last year's conference in Manchester, a lady called Jane, who works for our Burton office, won our Caregiver of the Year award. She'd worked in care for 34 years, and her award with us was the first piece of workplace recognition she'd ever received. Mm. Yeah. You know? That, again, tells you that people are not focusing on things which are really quite straightforward to do. Now, so we, we've got an inverted organizational chart of business angels. So I, I started the business from my dining room table. And you say I had the luxury of starting from scratch. I would argue that when it was just my dining room table, it didn't feel my, like much of a luxury back then. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, as the guy that started the organization, I'm the least important person here. Right. I'm at the bottom of our organisational chart as the least important person here. Our caregivers are at the top of the organisational chart. So we have an upside down pyramid if you want to look at it that way. yeah. Now, because I am at the bottom of that pyramid and the point is on my shoulders, the strength of belief I have to have in our vision has to feed those above me. But the larger we get as an organisation, the less important my belief is. It's not that I believe it less. It's just that when you've got more people in your organization, their belief becomes more important than yours does, right? So they need to be carecentric centric as well. If I if I surpass a manager, if I loop past the manager and love a carer directly, I invalidate that manager's position in in, in the organization, right? So yeah. my problem is to support them, to help them to love their staff more, okay? And then they can love their staff more. Now, when you work that way, you end up with everybody in the organization bearing some responsibility for being carer-centric. It's possible at Visiting Angels for a carer working alongside another carer to be so impressed by the work that's done by a colleague on an evening shift, a double-handed evening shift, that she can ring the office and ask the office to send that carer a thank you card from her. Arrives through the post, we facilitate a carer thanking another carer. Yeah. So these things are the things which really matter. Our conference theme last year actually was a thousand tiny thank yous. Because whenever I talk about this stuff, I inevitably talking about the big commercial levers like pay, benefits, and contracts. But actually, a thousand tiny thank yous is how you embed a culture. A thousand tiny thank yous is how you help people to feel like they belong to an organization. You know, that, that stuff's the stuff that's important when it comes to retention.
0: And as you grow, Dan, the task of inculcating the same beliefs, the values, the attitudes, the behaviors that you, you're talking about, I mean… Again, very similar to lots of businesses, that growth phase is a time when that can become a bit wobbly and more difficult. So in terms of your focus on leadership and values and really recognizing and accentuating the right behaviors, how do you go about doing that practically?
1: I mean, practically, I would say the biggest problem we've got in that respect is we recruit from an industry where we are the outliers. Yeah, and it's and it's not completely alien to other people, but it's not common practice for us to operate the way we operate, right? So if we're bringing in an experienced individual into a new location 100 miles down the road from where I'm sat today, the danger is that they're centric to our faces, right? They, they, they say they believe in the mantra when they're going through the interview process, but they get into the organization and then they start to do the things that they used to do in the other business that they worked in. And that's not the centric way, right? So we, we we for a start, we interview hard, and we interview hard for attitude not aptitude right for people that understand the problem if they can't identify the problem they're the wrong person right Um, so identify the problem and also recognize the responsibility that they can take for doing something different yeah? how can they make a change how can they have some ownership for the vision and the mission we have as an organization do, they, do their value base match our value base right so you know scenario based questions during interviewing to find a way of understanding how people think Psychometric testing for everybody, by the way, we're not only psychometric test managers and senior managers, we also every single caregiver that works for Visiting Angels has been psychometrically tested. So we understand our people as best as we possibly can do when they have day one in the organisation. But then we recognise day one in the organisation is when the hard work really starts, right? Because inevitably with volume and with growth and with pressure comes as sometimes a suggestion of maybe stepping away that's not the right way is it care centric which means the question on is it care centric has got to be a very easy one for people to ask yeah and on the walls of our organizations around the country we have sort of graphics on the walls which are you know designed to make people think about the fact they are working collectively as a team towards a shared goal the missions on the wall and we also ask the question what have you done to be care centric today and we also have a we have a a ship's bell or a last order's bell depending on on, on where you (laughs) come from and where, which is on the wall. And that's designed to be run by any of the office team when someone does something carer-centric. So there's an audible break in a busy office environment to get everyone thinking, oh, we've just done something of note. The thing we've done of note is to help a caregiver, to benefit a caregiver. But the, the very basic question is as a business, we ask ourselves the question, if we do that, does it improve the life of a carer? Because if it doesn't improve the life of a carer, it doesn't matter how much money we might make in doing it. It's not carer-centric. So we just don't do it. Yeah. and and i'm aware that that it makes us then sound like we're some sort of religious sect or some cult or something like that and people people have summed us up as a business which is too fluffy because they just can't be bothered understanding it um people who are you know in very senior positions in organizations that also work in our sector think that it's a shame when i go on TV and talk about treating care as well and properly because they believe we need to stick together and i'm like no, we really don't. No, we need to change things. Yeah. When you interview a caregiver who has been working 60 hours a week in their previous week, but only being paid for 50 of those 60 hours, they're struggling to make ends meet because the fuel prices have gone up, because the heating costs have gone up, because the, the food prices have gone up. The cost of living is squeezing them really tight. And you sit them down and point out that actually, if they'd worked for visiting angels, they would have been paid for all of their driving as well. People cry yeah and, and that and it, the, the, that's that's the thing we're, we're trying to drive out a change basically and yeah i'm sure when 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 this podcast goes live i know there'll be some people that, that listen to what we talk about today and will dismiss it hopefully there'll be some people who take a few nuggets away from this and things that they can potentially in, involve in, in in their organizations and, and make some changes there as well but as a sector if we don't change the problem's going to get worse not better
0: as i always say on these sorts of topics then we've got to talk about them and people have to express opinion to gain other people's opinion. You're expressing your opinion on it. I have a a small insight in some of the work that, that I've done, but I'm not living in in the industry. I'm not working in the industry. I don't experience the life of a of a carer. But I do think from this conversation, from research, from things that you read and things that you see on on the telly, we are, I say we, the care sector is experiencing very similar issues with regards to retention and recruitments to lots of people it's not just about the care industry we're using the care industry today as a sort of tableau for some pretty standard stuff i'm really always interested though to hear what industry leaders are doing in their sector to try and move the dial sometimes we hear new things and they can be applied to other businesses sometimes it's doubling down on the stuff that's really important and to use your words they are mainly common sense, but unfortunately, not common practice. So, on many of the things that you've talked about today, I've seen snippets of this when I've gone into places and 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 work with care. Is it consistent? I don't know. I have not seen everywhere. You're in it. You're telling me it's not not consistent.
1: I mean, what, what I would say is, if it, if it was consistent, we wouldn't have the workforce crisis that we've got, right? And 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 and, as, and it's in, the response to the workforce crisis in itself is interesting, right? Because they, they, you know, they, there was a report issued this last week, actually, which estimates that the, the cost of um, moving the pay rate for a home care worker to an acceptable pay rate is two billion. Wow. So, so that means we're two billion adrift of an acceptable pay rate currently is the way to read that. Yeah. Um, now, as a result of that, the government are quite happy to spend 15 million quid on a TV campaign to try and attract people to work in care because it's cheaper to do that than it is to fix the problem. There are some in the industry who believe that that we fix the problem of of, of sort of the shortage of care workers in the UK with overseas recruitment. And personally, my view is I don't think we find 152,000, fill fill 152,000 vacancies by finding people from around the world who don't know how difficult the job is, bringing them to the UK and then hoping they don't find out because they figure it out pretty quickly. Right? If you've not got your house in order, if you've not made the job a a better job, then it's not going to appeal to those people that you need to come and do it
0: yeah no a- absolutely i mean for me this conversation has been fascinating dan to have an inside view into the issues and the potential solutions to making it the best job in the world but we've come to the part in the show that i call sticky notes dan where i'm asking you to summarize all of the thoughts pent up upset whatever it might be my friend in the on three sticky notes, leave the audience today with how we can make the job of a carer the best job in the world.
1: Okay. Well, and listen, number one, we've talked about it already. They are they are the entry-level things. They are the have to be on the table things. It's pay, contracts, and pay for work that's done, okay? If you are not creating a situation where people are earning what they should earn, if they are driving between visits and not being paid for that, if they are stopping beyond the end of the visit and not being paid for that, if they are not getting enough money from their organisation to cover the cost of running the car that they're having to pay for themselves to get around and do the work, then these things are basics. You cannot equally expect loyalty if you're not going to extend loyalty, so zero-hour contracts. Do not have a place in this, as far as I'm concerned. Minimum wage is not enough. We're, We're paying up to £16 an hour across the country. We pay travel time. We have proper contracts. We find it easy to find people. Right. So number one is that. Yeah? Number two is absolutely the attitude that you take as an organization to your people. Not when you're forced to think about it, but all of the time. Yeah, People say to me, listen, I can tell you that our staff turnover nationally across the UK is 13% against an industry average of 60 to 70%. And When people say to me, like, we've got pretty good staff retention in our organization. And I will say, OK, what is it? And they can't give me a number, mm. which means they wish it was. If you don't measure it, you can't improve it, right? And we we've got some key performance indicators that we regularly work with, including staff burn rate, staff, staff turnover, yeah, cost of recruitment, and the capacity for taking additional cases, i.e., how, how how under or overworked the team that you've got currently are, right? Now, if you're measuring those things, you've got a barometer for whether your workforce and your attitude to your workforce is where you need it to be. Because I can guarantee you that all of these things are connected. Because if you pay people better, treat people better, and have happier carers as a result of that, then it's easier to keep people because you've got the best job in town. It's easier to recruit people because they recommend to their friends come and work here and their friends are prepared to come and work there, right? If if, if they're not enjoying their life, no one's saying to their friends, come over here, it's rubbish, right? So you create that positive environment, then you get referrals, and about 30% of all of our new caregivers are a referral from an existing caregiver, Mm -hmm. right? We're running a happy ship, So that that has got to be it as well. Not not thinking about it when you have to think about it. Thinking about it all the time. Yeah. And I think the final thing I would say in terms of a sticky note is it's broken. We need to stop talking about the fact it's broken. And we need to start doing something to fix it. And what as an industry and, and the politicians that work around this and the civil servants that work around this, everybody has got caught up on what is a generational shift, yeah? The the, the fixes that are needed are fixes which are 10, 15 year fixes, right? So politicians work in five year cycles. So they struggle with it because they can't see it within the electoral period that they're involved in, right? It's expensive. It requires people to recognize that social care is not free at the point of use like the NHS is when many people believe it is. So they get to a point of thinking, I'm gonna get this free care and then they don't, yeah? There's a conversation around how care is paid for. There's a conversation with with regard to how care is bought but we've got to have that conversation because as i've said already in the absence of enough money from central government in the absence of enough money from local government and in a situation where some care employers are not treating their staff the way that we would expect them to treat their staff the problem is that caregivers are the ones that end up subsidizing care packages by doing mm-hmm. all work and by not getting enough money to cover their cost of, of working right so Yeah, there's a problem there. Now, a politician will say it's too big a problem. At least we've got an industry in crisis. We've got, you know, the the, the, the hyperbole around describing how bad the situation is has just increased and increased and increased. You know, we're at a point now where we need a Spielberg-esque movie to describe the, the crisis of disaster that is the care industry, right? But, or we could just say, well, we can fix this. If I improve the working environment of one carer, that one carer can improve the life of three, five, seven, nine, ten, fifteen clients over their time with the organization. Yeah. I can do that. I'm in control of that. I can take ownership of that. So that is what I am trying to do.
0: And if that happens, my friend, the world becomes a better place. Some real food for thought in those sticky notes. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for speaking so candidly about the industry that you clearly care about and are trying to affect some change in. It's been really really interesting listening to you. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Andy listen thank you, thank you for having me on. Um it's interesting, right? So your your, your, your podcast is, is is sticky on the inside, right? And um, we talk all the time in the organization about how we are sticky as an employer, right? And I and I, I, I didn't know that when I started doing that. I've, I've not nicked it from you, I promise you. Um, but I, you know, that, that that in itself is a conversation for a care provider. How do they make themselves sticky, right? How do they make it somewhere that people have a relationship with and want to stay? So it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for letting me rant for a little bit. <laughs> I will
0: dismount my soapbox now and return to Listen, I'm a massive fan of soapboxes, so you're welcome to use that any old time, my friend. You take care. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thanks, Andy. Okay, everyone. That was Dan Archer. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about him or any of the topics that we've talked about today, then please check out the show notes. So that concludes today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham, and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.